I'm Sabri Beneshore from Marketplace. And I'm Tim Fernholtz from Quartz. And this is Actuality. Today we're going to talk about a couple different topics. One is the world's most economically important weather pattern. But first, we're going to talk about sleep. I appreciate this, but i really like to get some sleep. Oh, of course, my sweet. I'll just make some soothing ocean sounds for you. The Simpsons aren't the only Americans who are having trouble getting to sleep. About 40% of Americans get less than seven hours of sleep at night, which is unhealthy, and the Centers for Disease Control say that that's an epidemic. And yet, we have a guy with us today who is trying to get less sleep. So much less, in fact. Just four and a half hours a day, and he says he's still been able to be completely productive. Sounds nuts, but here he is, Akshat Rathi. He's Quartz's science and health reporter in London. Hello, Akshat. Hi. Akshat, you got a PhD in chemistry at Oxford. Your parents must be really upset. And (laughs) you decided you needed more time to do this. How did you get it? So one thing I did was I could not get away without sleeping eight hours a day. And I thought that was a big waste of my time. So looking at what other people had done, I decided to split my sleep into few hours at night and then many short naps. And overall, that worked out to be about four and a half hours. And how did you get this idea? The most prominent example I know is that of Buckminster Fuller. It was reported in Time magazine in 1943 that he followed something called the Dimaxian schedule in which he split up his sleep into four naps of 30 minutes each every day. That means instead of sleeping the average eight hours, he slept only two hours by splitting his sleep into four naps. And that worked for him and so you decided to try it? Yeah, apparently that worked for him for two years. And there are a lot of people who've written about repeating the experiments that Buckminster Fuller did. And online, there are forums that discuss polyphasic sleeping. And you can find examples of people who've tried many different types of schedules. And I found some confidence that this could be done. And I thought, hey, why not just try it? And you actually, uh, in your personal experiment, couldn't get the full Dimaxion going. Yes. Which I think is probably better for your health and sanity, to be honest. Yes. So the problem I had was I started out with the most ambitious of the goals, which was to go full on on a Dimaxian schedule and try and cut my sleep from eight hours to two hours. And in the first 36 hours of starting the experiment, there was a point where I could not think without having to get some sleep. I can't believe it took you 36 hours to get to that point. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you can do it too. It's not that hard to try and deprive yourself of 24 hours to 36 hours of sleep. It's not unheard of. But I hit that wall and I thought maybe I should try a softer schedule. And the softer schedule is called the everyman schedule. This is a great oxymoron, by the way. (laughs) That is true. (laughs) Although maybe maybe that's the ambitious aim. You want every person to to have that sleep schedule. So what was your um, schedule like? Just describe your day for us under this one. So it was sleeping three and a half hours at night and then taking three 20-minute naps in the day. Were you able to do anything while you were awake? Yes, absolutely. I think the reason I continued with the experiment is it helped me be more productive. The first three weeks when I was adjusting to the schedule were terrible. 
After that, though, suddenly there was like a switch, which I knew that I'd adjusted to the schedule. And from then on, it was perfect. Every time I woke up, it was as if I was waking up after a really good sleep. Wow. Well, uh, what did you do with all this extra time? Okay, so the PhD was going to take most of my time, and that is why I did this. Uh, But more than that, that was the period when I decided that after I finished my PhD, I do not want to remain in academia anymore. Writing was something I used to do before that as a hobby. And so I did a lot of writing during that year. And eventually that experience got me to become a journalist. Wow. This is what we should be telling our interns. You really (laughs) want to be a journalist, you got to take a year and only sleep four and a half hours a night. (laughs) So this seemed to have worked out well for you, but you did eventually return to a normal sleep schedule. So why did you give up on the everyman? I went for this conference and I could not get a nap for a whole week. I realized I would have probably have to go through the three-week adjustment period and I was just not prepared to do it. One of the recent articles that you wrote on the topic of sleep science is actually kind of scary. It suggests that African-American people have lower life expectancy because on average they get less sleep. Yes, this is a CDC report that said that as many as 53% of black Americans sleep less than seven hours a day in comparison to about 34% of white Americans. The reason CDC thinks this is important is because there is a large health gap between black Americans and white Americans. Black Americans live four years less than the average. And even if they count for factors such as prosperity, access to health care, they are not able to figure out what is it that contributes to such a large gap between white and black Americans. And recently, some academics thought that maybe sleep might explain this gap. Huh. Yeah. What happens uh, with our bodies when we sleep? So think about all biological processes. They consume some energy and they produce some waste. And this waste needs to be collected and then excreted out of the body. This happens throughout your body throughout the day, but not in your brain. What I've found in in recent research is that the only time when waste is removed from your brain is at night when you sleep. I have to say this, and it's not scientifically accurate, but is what you're telling me is that when we sleep, our brains are pooping? In a way, that's true. Um, No, 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 no. (laughs) I almost had you. You said it. You said it. I almost had it. You said it. it. We're keeping it. Okay, so... Think about it. You're pooping. Your brain is pooping. <laughs> your brain is pooping through the day, except all the poop is collected at night. Okay, that that makes so it seem even more important. So you have through the day your <laughs> through the day your neurons are producing waste, but at night your brain literally shrinks, allowing a cerebrospinal fluid to flow into the brain and collect all the waste that's been generated through the day and then excrete it out. In the interest of better health, let's be a little servicey. Is there anything we can do that can make our sleep better? Like, are there prescriptions, electrodes, magic bullets? Don't tell me to not have coffee before bed. It is 2015. I want the flying car version of sleep technology. I'm sorry to disappoint you, but oh. we, we understand very little about sleep. And so any technologies that have been built to improve our sleep haven't really worked out. What we are really left with when it comes to improving our sleep is really ancient wisdom. I'm talking no coffee or alcohol uh, for a few hours before you go to bed. Okay. You lost me at alcohol. 
<laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Some people may just be programmed for less than optimal sleep. Well, Akshat Rathi, programmed for optimal sleep and Quartz's science and health correspondent, thanks for talking to us about your bizarre experiment. Well, thanks for having me and thanks for letting me talk about my weird experiments. After talking to Akshat, we had a few more questions about sleep. So we called up Charles Nunn. He's professor of evolutionary anthropology and global health at Duke University and author of The Evolution of Sleep. Charles, thanks for joining us. Sure, my pleasure. Okay, so tell us, is what Akshat did, you know, sleeping four and a half hours a night, is that healthy? I understand a lot of people try to do this, and I think we we know nothing about the health consequences of it. And Charles, what's interesting to me is that the way we sleep now, the way we think about normal sleep now, that's actually, historically, that's abnormal, right? We used to sleep more like Akshat, right? That's right. I mean, the the indications are that hunter-gatherers have a very fragmented sleep. Um, They sleep over, uh, really over the whole 24-hour cycle. They're sleeping periodically. In some populations, it's been described that they take uh, no more than a two-hour nap at any given time, and they lack that kind of consolidated sleep. Um, from some of our work, we've discovered that human sleep is actually shorter than sleep in any other primate. And in a hunter-gatherer context, that sleep is distributed throughout the 24-hour period. So it probably isn't coincidental that the rise of people interested in polyphasic sleep is also accompanied by the rise of people interested in the paleo diet. It's like the paleo diet of sleep, kind of. That's right. I suppose there's some uh, interest in that. I think it's mainly, though, uh, driven by an interest in being more efficient and the idea that sleep is a waste of time and how can we minimize it. It's really an extension of what's happened with consolidating our sleep you know, into the shortest time possible into one block uh, so that we can use our other time more efficiently. And uh, in a sense, it's going one step further than that by, um, you know, trying to parse out that, that consolidated sleep into little chunks and still be as effective cognitively, but have more time for that. And I have to say, by the way, sleep sounds like the worst evolutionary idea ever, that you're going to be incapacitated for significant periods of time for a dinosaur to come eat you. Why do we do it? I suspect there are many different reasons for why animals sleep, and those reasons have shifted over time. Um, but there are a lot of good reasons to shut down the body, you know, for repair of the body, for immune function, for consolidating memories and, you know, helping the brain be more efficient, or simply to be quiet uh, at a time when there might be other predators around and there's nothing you could do. You know, if you have, for example, diurnal adaptations active during the day, maybe it's better to, to just uh, shut things down and be as quiet as possible at night uh, when there are nocturnal predators around. Well, Charles, thanks so much for for joining us. Happy to help. Charles Nunn is professor of evolutionary anthropology and global health at Duke. What you just heard is the sound of rain falling in western India, captured by Reuters. And today, uh, we're lucky enough to have in our New York City studio, Dave Jote Goshal, who's Quartz's India editor, and he's going to tell us about what's going on. Hello, Tim. We're in the midst of one of the most important weather phenomena on the planet. You want to tell us what it is? The Great Indian Monsoon. India is the third largest economy in Asia, has one point two billion people, 
and its prosperity hinges on the season. You want to explain why? So the monsoon is uh, is basically a four month period of intense rain, and it brings with it about seventy five percent of the annual rainfall that the country sees. It's a really massive, concentrated few months of crazy rain. So the monsoon essentially dominates the economy. So there are a couple of pieces to the puzzle. I think the first thing that you have to realize is that India's agriculture forms a pretty large part of of, of the overall economy. Uh, and the large majority of farmland in India is actually dependent on rainfall. So as a country, we are extremely dependent on the monsoons. And so if the monsoons fail or if the monsoons just give us way too much rain, uh, then you have massive chunks of the population who are directly affected by it. This then has a washdown effect on on the larger economy because if rural consumption falls, then everyone starting from people who make soaps and shampoos to people who make cars and motorcycles. So this one single weather phenomena can really set the tone for the Indian economy for an entire year. Is it predictable? I mean, uh, is it predictable in the same way that we can predict the you know rain tomorrow, or is it unpredictable like like hurricane season? That's been one of the sort of ongoing debates in in the Indian weather community, so to say, this year. So you have the Indian Meteorological Organization or the department, which is a over hundred years old, which was set up by by the British when they ruled the subcontinent. The whole point of setting that up was to predict the monsoons. And the IMD has actually not done a great job of predicting the monsoons, despite existing for over a century. And that's created opportunities for small startups to now come in, use the same data that the IMD produces, and model it differently. And so this year, going into the monsoons, we had the IMD, which was the government weather organizations saying that we'll actually have a deficit monsoon. And then you had a startup and they said we'll actually have a monsoon that's closer to normal. And so right now we're still trying to see who's right. The monsoon season could be make or break for India's newish prime minister Narendra Modi. How does that work? So Mr. Modi, um, he he came in last year on on grandiose promises of economic rejuvenation. Which every uh, national leader should come into office with. I think the Modi magic, as it was called, worked on a lot of people. And so basically, he came in last year on the basis of those promises, and he's not really been able to to get the economy to pick up steam. If the monsoon fails on him this year, he's going to have everyone from FMCG companies to automakers. FMCG? Fast-moving consumer goods. So everything from soaps to shampoos. We like our abbreviations. So everything from FMCG companies to, to automakers will will feel the pain. And that in turn uh, means that your manufacturing economy starts suffering more. So if the monsoons don't deliver, the problem is that the rural economy will start stalling. And without the rural economy firing, Modi's promises of, of 8 9 10% growth just aren't going to materialize. So we have... Uh Political fortunes, economic fortunes, all hinging on the weather. It's one of the few weather phenomena that will impact everyone from the poorest man in the country to the richest guy. So in a strange way, it is, it is, it's really uh, the great equalizer. Uh, if you were in Calcutta right now, how would your daily life be affected by the monsoon? What is it like to be there during these rains? I think a rough parallel is is a snowstorm in New York, except that instead of snow, it's just water. And your basic infrastructure around you is not built to deal with it. So there are no snow trucks that go shoveling 
the warning systems don't really exist. So uh, in places like Bangalore, which is which is in the Silicon Valley, entrepreneurs are often very distressed by the coming of the monsoons because their internet connectivity sometimes goes for a toss. Yeah, that's so ironic that the old economy benefits from the monsoons, whereas the new economy, it's liability for them. I think it's 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 just one of those realities of of living in a in a in a country as crazy as India, where you where you have the farmer who can't wait for the rain to arrive, and the entrepreneur sitting there. Please don't rain like crazy for the first three days because I want my internet to work. Well, you'll have to update us at the end of this monsoon season. Dave Jot Goshal is the India editor for Quartz. Thanks. Thank you. And now for something completely different, because we haven't done enough different things. Final segment, of course, is Quartz's surprising discovery. We report on the news items that make you raise your eyebrows. Today's totally unrelated item is about a sleeping mystery in Kazakhstan. Turns out there are these two villages in Kazakhstan where villagers just kept falling asleep uh, in the middle of the day. Uh, They would fall asleep suddenly even while walking and wake up with memory loss, grogginess, weakness, and headaches. Some fell victim more than half a dozen times, with sufferers sleeping for up to six days at a time, The Guardian reports. No, this isn't The Guardian. This is the Brothers Grimm. This is like a, this is this is what happened when Maleficent and the Sleeping Beauty, the town. This can't possibly be real. Well, apparently it is real, but uh, people trying to solve this couldn't come up with any uh, solution or any reason why this was happening. What they eventually found were there are these two uranium mines near the town. And I know what you're thinking because I can see your faces. <laughs> you're thinking it's radiation. It's not radiation. Okay. Because they checked everybody for radiation. It wasn't an unusually high number apparently, uh, but people were still passing out. What it turns out was happening was I guess when you have old closed-up mines, carbon monoxide <gasps> can build up. I was going to guess that. Were you? You got to guess it faster. We'll retape this so you guess it earlier. <laughs> But yeah, apparently the whole town was like, uh, you know, when your carbon monoxide alarm should be going off in your house, but it's an entire town. And so they're relocating the uh, 200 or so families to someplace that's less of a death trap. Well, good for them. I wonder how long it took them to figure that out. Also, that's terrifying because carbon monoxide, if it doesn't just make you groggy, it freaking kills you. Since March 2013, and uh, the Kazakh government announced this discovery last week. So for at least two years, this small village was suffering like a like a Grimm's fairy tale style curse. Well, I'm going to go and buy a carbon monoxide detector. And uh, that's all the time we have. If you want to know more about extreme sleep avoidance strategies or... Pooping brains. Brain poop, economically important weather patterns, or anything else happening in the economy today, check out marketplace.org and qz.com. While you're at Quartz, take a moment and sign up for our daily brief. It is the perfect way to start your day. And by the way, we would love to know what you think of this podcast, what you like and what you did not like, and what topics we should take on. You can email us at mpqz at marketplace.org or leave a message for us at 802-430-6779. And we got a nice message last week. Yeah, Mike from uh, Houston. Thanks, Mike from Houston. He uh, heard our episode about bad bosses and even learned something, which proves that we're not wasting everyone's time completely here. Hey, guys. So I thought I would call while I'm on my dog walk. I'm part of a new startup nonprofit with a female CEO, and I felt buoyed by your report that the female CEOs are less likely to be the crazy. Thanks, guys. No, thank you, and thanks to everyone else who listens. By the way, at Twitter, we are at ActualityPod. 
I'm at Sabritri, and Tim is at Tim Fernholtz with a Z. Jake Gorski uh, composed and produced our theme song. Claire Tennisketter is our dedicated, if occasionally frustrated, producer. And our overlords at Marketplace and Quartz are tolerant of our activities. You've been listening to Actuality, the Marketplace Quartz podcast. We'll be back soon with more stories from all over the world. See you then.